Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we talk to students, educators, and thought leaders who are innovators and creatives in education. I'm your host, Tanya Sheckley. Thanks for joining us. Welcome, everyone. I'm here today with Dr. Jennifer Preshern. She's a professor of business English in Austria and the co-founder of the Speech and Language Literacy Lab, sl3lab.com, where she worked to create practical applications of research in the areas of speech, language, and literacy. Now, I first met Dr. Preshern through LinkedIn after she finished her dissertation research analyzing the international baccalaureate primary year's teachers' perceived barriers to instruction for students with dyslexia. So we were connected originally through our work to make schools more inclusive. So can you talk a little bit about your dissertation and what led to, you know, looking at those barriers for instruction? Sure. So most of my professional career has been spent in the United States working as a speech language pathologist and learning disabilities teacher. And then I had the opportunity to come to Europe about seven years ago. So my husband is Austrian. And he said, Jennifer, let's go. I have a job opportunity in Europe. Let's go. So I went. And so I was hired on as a English teacher at an international baccalaureate school in here in Austria. And so when I arrived, I said to the teaching staff, hey, I'm an expert in language disabilities and in dyslexia. And if the children need extra support, I'm here to help you. And so I was really surprised to find that this particular school didn't have any sort of additional needs support teacher you know, whatever you want to call that additional needs, special education, inclusive education, there was no extra person to really provide support. And so I started looking into this and I, this made me very curious, you know, what are other international schools globally? And by international schools, I'm primarily discussing the international baccalaureate school system. And so what that is, it's, it's basically a very, very large network of schools. It's in over 150 countries right now. It's well known. And so it was originally started as a prestigious thing for mostly diplomat students in Geneva and it's expanded. And so this made me curious, what are these other schools doing to include kids with special needs? I couldn't find the research, even though that the, the organization said, hey, we have to include children. We have to identify barriers to education. No one had really looked at what those barriers were and no one had really asked if students were being included. And so that's kind of where I said, I'm really interested in this. And that's kind of what drove me to go back to get a PhD to study this. So that's what I did. Wow. So it's interesting because I, I feel like that's such an integral part of education in the United States is that we're, you know, providing those extra resources and students get individualized education plans. And, you know, it's not perfect, but we're working towards identifying those students and giving the supports where needed. So it's interesting to hear that there's, you know, a huge organization of schools that's in over 150 countries that's not even looking at at learning disabilities like dyslexia. I think it's really interesting to me, you know, and I think when you watch the United States media and they're always criticizing teachers, you know, and, and I have to say here now in Europe, because I'm back here again, they're criticizing teachers here everywhere. It seems to be a universal theme that teachers aren't doing enough, schools aren't doing enough. We're falling behind in these PSAS tests. Because when they talk of, I think of the media, when we talk about schools and teachers falling behind, primarily what the media is talking about is something called the PISA test. 
And the PISA test is an international test given to students who are in a college preparatory environment, and they test them on their math skills and on their English skills, and then they use this data to compare schools, right? And the problem with this, and this kind of gets me back in a second to why the United States is really great, the problem with this PISA test is that in America, 95% of our students are being given college preparatory content. Right. So again, the PISA test can only be given to students being given college preparatory content. By contrast, if you look at a country like Singapore, 20% of the kids are given college preparatory content. Well, if you take the top 20% and you compare them to 95%, who do you think is going to come out higher on those tests? I mean, Singapore. And so when you look at where these rankings fall, there is a 100% direct correlation to how many, what percentage of children are given college preparatory content and who is actually being tested. And so my point is we are not comparing apples to apples on these international tests because the sampling population is not the same. And so I think those tests, on one hand, they're being, they're being used to criticize teachers everywhere that we're not doing enough, we're not doing enough. And I think we have to stop and pause, especially in the United States and say, you know what? We're doing an amazing job relatively speaking, to the rest of the world and including children who have different learning needs. So all of our children are included in the classrooms. We're trying our very best to meet kids where they're at. And I'm not saying that we're perfect by any means, uh, but I'm saying that I think the American teachers really do try to meet every kid where they are. And again, worldwide, if we look at us compared to the rest of the world. So... I'm very positive about that. I know that, you know, when you're in America, you see all the problems. You want to make it better. I've been there and I, I still want to make it better because I know we're not perfect. But I think sometimes we have to just stop and be like, we are awesome as Americans. Because I really do, after I've stepped outside of the bubble, I really do feel that way um, in that respect. And a huge shout out to teachers everywhere. Absolutely. For everything that they're doing because they are Absolutely. not given enough credit for the education, for the professionals, for the experience that they bring. And especially, you know, through the pandemic, I think a lot of people have had the opportunity to see just how challenging the profession is and all the things that our teachers are doing. Absolutely. And I've thought a lot about these PISA tests. You know, on one hand, it's it's like I get angry when I see the teacher bashing that goes on internationally. It's happening here too with these tests. But on the other side, I have to say, and again, if there's teachers listening, the flip side of this is it does tend to bring money <laughs> into teaching. So if you can create this fear and panic, oh my gosh, we're falling behind. We need to do more. We need to do more. And it results in teachers getting funded to do more things. I mean, I can't say that that's a bad thing. So I guess it's, if you're a teacher in the trenches and you're tired of getting bashed, just know that you're probably doing amazing work and you should be supported. But at the same time, know that if that's bringing you more money, maybe it's not a bad thing. So looking back, going back to your dissertation for a moment, you found that the schools really weren't focusing on dyslexia and learning disabilities. And so that led to your studies. But what were the barriers to that? Why weren't they doing that? Is it something that just wasn't visible or they were just ignoring or didn't have the resources or the funding? You know, what what were those barriers? Um, and so I basically I surveyed teachers. And I had about or a little over 200 people from 54 different countries, which I thought was really exciting. So it's, it was very much a global sample. And it was definitely not because the teachers didn't care or that they didn't want to help. 
And so almost, I think it was almost universal, like 99, 95 to 99% of the teachers said they believed that dyslexia was a real thing and that they wanted to help because I had all these various questions to find out opinions. Mm-hmm. So teachers wanted to help pretty much everywhere in the whole world. But the biggest barriers were number one, just lack of knowledge. And so 74% of the teachers said that they generally just lack the education on how to help kids. And I think that is really universal. It's not just in other countries. That is also a very big problem in the United States. Even going through my, my literacy PhD at St. John's, you know, even within our program, which was focused on literacy and reading, we had to discuss what is the science behind reading? Because there is a lot of scientific research that goes into what makes a kid be able to read. Why are kids struggling? What can we do better? But there is still this general myth that things like whole language, that telling a kid to look at a word and guess, to skip it and come back to it, that these things are going to help. And I am completely adamant they do not work. The whole language, balanced literacy, it's called different things. There's different systems that are given, you know, brand names that do these things. They don't work. They do not help kids with dyslexia. And I think that too many researchers have been too kind about letting teachers off the hook for this. And I have to say that when I first started teaching, I did these things as well. I went to Northwestern for a, a learning disabilities degree and a speech language degree. And I have to say that this, even the science there was not kind of pushed at me. And I really think that that needs to change in teaching training programs, which is another reason I went back because teachers don't know what the science is. And it's not their fault because it's not being taught in the schools, in the universities. So I know that's kind of a tangent, but, but that's kind of one of my universal findings was that teachers don't have the knowledge and they, they say it. They don't know what to do with these kids. So that's one of the biggest barriers. And then second is the lack of materials. And so 71% of the schools I surveyed said that they had special education people or they had some sort of staff to help kids. But 95% of the teachers surveyed said that they didn't have appropriate materials. And so getting resources into the hands of teachers and getting knowledge is a really big problem to helping kids with dyslexia, you know, internationally. So I do have some resources if teachers are out there listening. As part of my research, I created a website with my name, just jenniferpressure.com. Um, and I, I linked up a bunch of free webinars that different organizations have for, you know, basics of phonological awareness trainings and how to connect phonology to phonics and things like that, that do help and that are very research-based and that there's this free webinars that people can listen to in order to learn more. It's like you've already answered my next question. We know the things that don't work, you know, when we see the challenge there that we're not getting the knowledge or the knowledge that we're getting is around things that have been proven through research to not be the things that work best. I'm telling you, Tani, it is drama. And if you look back <laughs> at reading History. This was one of the, my, one of my most favorite things about getting this PhD was looking back historically at how education and culture intermix. Because I think we don't often think about, you know, how our educational systems are so culture rich. You know, and I know now the trend has become different looking at white privilege and things like racial issues, but it's so intermixed with what we as a culture value want to, to teach our kids. And so, just super quick history, because I think this explains these reading wars, which is what they're truly called in a lot of places between people who want this balanced literacy and the phonics camp. I mean, when I say war, I literally mean 
people call each other names. Like there are groups that call people who are phonics zombies, like we're phonics zombies. And so looking back at like the 1950s, and again, this will be short, 1950s, you had these very structured reading programs. You know, Dan can sit on a can. Super boring, very controlled readers to teach children phonics. You know, the language to sound, to print connection. Very controlled, very boring. And do you remember when you were a kid doing SRA books? When they had these very boring (laughs) books. That sounds like how I learned to read. Yeah, I remember looking at words that my teacher was writing and yeah, they would rhyme and they were very similar and they sounded alike and it was... yes. Yes. And we're a little bit young, but I think if you ask even your grandma or something or your mother, there's something interesting to talk to people about who remember these books that were very structured and it was boring. And that was the 1950s. And if you think about 1950s, you know, you think about square box families and, you know, did 1950s. And then you had this cultural revolution of free love and everything's open and we want to explore individuality. And then you have this whole language movement kind of ushered in by a group of people that said, Hey, we need this rich language of individualized interest in following kids where they are. And so they wanted to teach children how to read through this great context, basically giving kids rich stories and, and, and teaching them to read, which is also not a bad thing. I mean, these things are good, right? So, but they said, we want to get rid of all that phonics because it's boring. We want to just push it to the side. It doesn't help. We want to read rich stories and get right into content. And so all of this 1950s was thrown out, right? And so really what needs to happen, so there's, you have these two camps. You have this phonics camp and you have this whole language rich content and they, children need both. And I don't, I don't understand what the fight is about. I mean, I feel like we all just need to play nice. You need to teach children the basics of how this language works, but then you need to give them rich language as well. I, I don't see it as being a fight. Um, and after being, you know, a teacher and a parent and, learning a foreign language. I mean, I've kind of seen it from all ways. I can't read German if I don't know what the O with the two dots over it. How do I say that? I still can't say it. It's like an ooh sound. I can't do it. But if I don't know what that is, I can't read because I don't know what it says. Or -hmm. like in German, if you have the letter I-E, it says E. So like the word beer, because that's the first word you learn when you come to Austria, is B-I-E-R. B-I-E-R, and that's beer, right? But E-I, if you flip it, says I. So that's opposite English, Mm -hmm. right? And so in order to learn how to read those words in German, I had to go back literally and teach myself the phonics. And I literally practiced phonological awareness with myself to remember the sounds and the letters for those combinations. And so like, I think about that as an adult. That's what our kids need too. But, but then knowing that those letters make those sounds doesn't help me speak German. I still need to have context and content and stories. I need both. And I think that is what we're missing in a lot of schools and we're missing internationally is the both because the teachers don't know the phonics doesn't stop when you know A says ah. I mean, there's a lot of other rules that are that go way above and beyond. That's a long answer. <laughs> oh, it's good. We know, I mean, we know from the neuroscience just of learning anything that the brain needs variation and that we're all going to pick up different pieces of different things at different times and our brains put them together in different ways for each of us. But we need all of that variation in order for our brain to sort it out and for it to make sense. Right. And it doesn't have to be boring. We need 50s boxes and free love. Like, 
why should we choose? <laughs> it's like I hear these and I read these blogs where people are fighting over which is better. It's like you need both. And I, for me, when I've taught kids, you don't want to do phonics all day because it isn't, it's not a story, you know, and some of the, some of the content is not most exciting. But if you do 10, 20 minutes a day, it's great. It's like giving kids the, the Lego blocks, showing them how they stick and then letting them create, you know, you do both. And the kids like it because it helps. And, and as I said, I did it for myself. So I know it works. <laughs> Looking back, one of the projects that you worked on back when you were working with public schools and in pre-K was working with the Lena program. And so even before phonics and even before we're looking at language structure or whole word or interesting rich texts, we need to learn to hear the language. And that's a lot of what the Lena program did. So can you talk about you know, how you use that and how you use that to look at early language to help prevent some of the later academic issues? So there's a lot of research. One of my particular favorite crushes is Dr. Laura Justice. Last time I checked, she was at University of Ohio. So if this gets back to her, I have a huge fan. And she's done a lot of research looking at how early language is directly correlated to later academic success. And so from ages birth to three and three to five, not only the amount of language that you hear, there's been a lot of research on the amount of language, but also the language interactions between caregiver and child and how that is really crucial to brain development. And so this Lena technology, it's language environmental noise analysis. I think that's what it stands for. It's basically a word pedometer. And so it's a little device. They're based out of Colorado. Little device you put in a child's t-shirt or overalls and you parent or caregiver turns it on when the child wakes up and then you turn it off when the child sleeps and it gives a word count of not just the number of words that the child says, the number of words the parent says, and then the number of interactions, you know, between child and adults, whether caregiver, grandma, babysitter, whoever. And so then you can take this data and talk about where a child is and where they need, where they should be in terms of just straight numbers to be school ready. And so it's it's a way to kind of open the conversational door without any judgment at all about what's happening in the home. And a lot of times parents will look at it and go, oh, wow, things like this. This is something I've seen. Wow, when I turn the television on, all of a sudden the numbers go way down. And it's, it's like, yeah, that not that interesting? Because I think it's one thing to tell a parent if you give your child a device, because I mean, I'm a mom too. I mean, I'm not immune to wanting to keep my child when my kids were little an iPhone. But, you know, when you give your child an iPhone, look what happens to the interaction. It, it's gone, right? And I and I had parents come into our preschool who said, my child is really, really smart. I can give them an iPhone and they know how to open up the apps on my phone and how to play, right? Because you would think that that's a super intelligent thing to do because it's not easy. But it was difficult. And I, you know, I didn't actually say this to many parents because it's so difficult to put it in a nice way. That's a cause effect play action. When you're touching buttons and it's just things are opening, that is like equivalent to one of those toys where you're pushing a button and, and something pops up, right? You know what I'm talking about? Those little toys. And that is a zero mm-hmm. to six month old skill. So that doesn't make your child intelligent. That is actually holding them back. What your child needs when they're three is language interaction. They need play. They need dramatic play. They need interaction. But so giving them this data was a way to get into that conversation without judging. You let the parents realize these things and then you just you dialogue it, right? Instead of making any judgments what you're doing 
because, you know, as I said, I'm a mom too, and I gave my kids phones, but I put them in front of the television. You know, there isn't a perfect world or perfect parent or babysitter. Oh, it's a really, it sounds like a really interesting program. And I, I would have been really curious to have something when my kids were little, just to see where we were, just to have the data. Just to see it. Or it's reinforcement. Yeah. Yeah. Like, hey, I'm doing it. And I, I have to say, when, when I did this program, I had a, a, my own child that was about five or six, which is a little old for the program. But I totally used it on her because I wanted to see where are you at? You know, for my particular school, I wanted to get it because I said we were working in a low income school, a lot of different languages going on. And the cool thing about Lena is it works for different languages. It doesn't matter what language you're speaking. Um, but we had siblings coming in and who were younger. And so one of the, the things that your teachers always say is, Oh, we get them at age three and it's already kind of late. You know, maybe there's already a language gap forming because, and again, that language rich environment is so important when you're little. And so I wanted to reach the kids, like, what do I do to reach kids who aren't even in the building yet? And so that is a way. If you can get the families in, if we know that this child is already at risk because, you know, the child has been identified as speech language delayed, you can reach their siblings before they even step foot in your door by getting the families this training that they need to help the younger ones. Yeah, as a parent, I always heard about how important the language-rich environment was. And being an introvert, it's not my nature to just chat away to my kids and tell them what we're doing and talk to them, you know, and especially when they're little and they're not always talking back, like knowing they still need to hear that. But like that ongoing conversation, it just would have been really interesting to have something like this that existed. Just to see. So yeah, so Lena's got, um, there's tons of research on the system and they continuously get outside researchers to come in and look at this. I know the Bill Gates Foundation gave a lot of money uh, with a big group called Providence Talks to look at this for low income families, for parent trainings in a private clinic. Mm-hmm. And again, as I said, we at my particular preschool, we were one of the first ones that did it in a public school setting. And, you know, our parents were amazing. The parent foundation actually funded all of this. And so I used, there's a lot of research by a man, University of Chicago, actually an economist. You know, people need to see, is my money going to make a difference, right? And so Dr. James Heckman is an economist and he looks at what the rate of return is in investing in education at different places in a child's educational career. And so what he's, his research has shown is if you can invest in early childhood as early as possible, that this is the biggest rate of return on a child's life. I'm going to say money, but truly it's a child's life. And so we used a lot of his research and data to say to the parents, hey, this is why we want this system in a child's life and in a family's life. This is how it's going to pay off, not just for this child, but in terms of economic terms for our school district. You know, if we can prevent kids by any chance of having later academic problems, this is how we're going to save money later. And so it worked. Um, the parents gave us the biggest parent grant ever given, and we got this technology. And, you know, I have the grants. It's a little bit older now, but I have the grants on my speech language literacy lab website. I've made all the, all the documents I used available. Um, so people research or Google speech language literacy lab, Lena, you, you should be able to find it or I can share it with your followers. Fantastic. So I always ask all of my guests a question about their elementary education. So I run an elementary school. And so I love to hear what was a story or something that you remember from your elementary school years? Oof, that is difficult. I have to say that I, I feel tremendously privileged that I had two parents, you know, working hard, who really supported me 
and my own education. I have a little brother who is 15 months younger than I am. It's kind of a funny memory. My little brother, Tim, is a perfectionist, right? And I remember when he was at the first grade getting a call, you know, Jennifer McGee, can you please come down to the school secretary and finding my little brother dying because he had gotten a B plus in reading. (laughs) My little brother, Tim, and if he ever listens to this, I'm teasing you, Tim. And so Tim went on to be an overachiever and now he's a rocket scientist, literally at NASA. We still joke about how that was the only B he ever got in his life. So I know that's, <laughs> that's not a super interesting story. Maybe Tim's a little much. If you asked him about the weather or you asked him about, Tim, how's your day? Fine. Tim, what do you think about, you know, how, how's your family? Fine. What do you think about ro- robots taking over the future? Well, then four hours later. <laughs> so that's my, that's my only funny story I remember from my, my elementary years was really my parents really pushing us hard, working all the time. And then my little brother crying because he got a B. Yeah, I feel like there could be some commentary there on the psychology of grades and grading and what that does to, you know, drive and student motivation. But I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. It's so funny being, you know, looking back as an educator. You know, I went to a school that ranked us when we were grades K through four. And there'd be like the winner of the class. Oh, wow. You know, and, and now I look back at that as a teacher and it's like, I don't even having to give grades to students. And so it's so difficult sometimes because sometimes you have students who come in and you know are working really hard. And that is a big difference between America and Europe. I want to grade students not only on the product, but on the effort put in. And the European Austrian model is very much product only. You know, you're either there or you're not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's something we talk a lot about is looking at the process versus the product. And what does that look like? And how are we making progress? And how do we assess that? But that would be another topic for a whole other podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. And if you focus solely on grades, it's like you create these little monsters, kind of like my brother, where you're focused on grades. I mean, granted, he's, he's been okay. But I think I was a product of this, where I was so focused on my grade that sometimes I forgot that learning was the goal and not the grade. Because it, it makes you almost averse mm-hmm. to risk, to trying something different or pushing yourself beyond your boundaries because you're so worried about not getting the greed, you know, and that is a difficult, it's a difficult thing to balance too as a teacher, because on the, on the flip side, I've looked at research that says, for example, vocabulary learning, if you have a quiz at the end of a unit, students are more likely to learn the words. And so it's like, you need to have these assessments But at the same time, what if you have a student who really tries and really studies and they just can't take them longer? I don't know. That's one of those things I struggle with all the time as a teacher. So if anyone out there has tips, I definitely assessment versus learning. I don't know. It's one of the things that I was just reading. I've been reading David Epstein's range, and he has a whole chapter where he talks about desirable difficulties and how if you are doing that vocabulary test, it's often the kids that do the worst on the test and then have to go back and figure out why it was wrong and how they can fix it, that actually end up with the most learning because they're the ones that now had it wrong. And so now when they fix it, then it sticks because they've learned kind of what was wrong and how to make it right versus just memorizing it for the test and then forgetting it and letting it seep out of your brain. It's so true because, you know, I think about even, yeah, like how many times have you just memorized things to spew it out on a test and then it's gone? Oh, I wish I knew all those things. 
know, right? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's something that I struggle with all the time as a teacher. Like, how do I get the learning to stick? I mean, is all learning even necessary to stick? And that's the other thing I think about. It's like, how many things do we learn in school that maybe the whole point, like math, maybe the whole point is just to learn how to be structured and organize your day because that's really the skill you need in life, no matter what you do. You know, how do you structure and learn something new? Because there's so many things I'm sure we can all relate when you go into the real world that nothing you learned in school is applicable to your current job. You know, but it's like the process of how you learn and how you apply yourself is the goal, knowing how to do that. And so I think about that too when I, when I try to create activities for my, my university students, you know, getting them organized. That's the goal. Yeah. Learning and learning how to be organized and learning how to get through a project and having that system. Absolutely. How to learn something new. Like how do you approach it when all of a sudden your teacher throws at you a Google document system because you're now online and you have to submit your homework in a different way? You know, the, the process of, of getting new technology and how do you deal with the stress of that and structure yourself and how do you ask for help and what do you do? I mean, it's almost like those skills that we have to just deal with in, in school. Maybe that is the goal because that's what you take with you when you go into the real world because that's going to happen to you. You can't test that though. So, and there's the problem. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. That's the way I looked at college and still look at college so much. It's like it didn't necessarily matter what I got my degree in. It was learning that system and how to work through the system and how to jump through all of the right hoops to get the degree at the end so that I could show someone, look, I figured out how to master this. I'm worthy of learning the next thing. Like, give me a job. Absolutely. Remember, I don't know if you might be too young, but. I remember when I was a freshman at Northwestern, they said, you have to get this thing called email. <laughs> and I remember going, oh, what is this? I'm never going to use this email. You know, I think we had AOL dial up at the time. And it would, you had to use the phone lines. And, I, you know, I think how far we've come. But it was like that process of dealing with this, oh, something new. And if only I could look ahead, you know, 20 years now, it's like, how many apps do I have to learn? Or I'm on Facebook or I'm on Instagram or I'm TikTok or, you know, my kids are Snapchatting. You know, it's like a life skill professionally, personally, yeah, to be able to deal with these new things. But nobody had email. Like I could email my roommate. She was the only other person I knew with an email <laughs> address. And to do it, I had to go to the campus computer lab, wait in line, sign into a computer, sign in with my email so I could send her an email. Right. So that <laughs> nobody had computers like it, it was really rare to have a computer. Oh, my God. <laughs> how fast is time moving? And that's part of it, right? Is how do we set kids up with the skills and the processes to deal with the new things that are coming? Absolutely. There's And there's no way to know what's going to happen. You know, there's no way to know that when you're 20 years old at email, all of a sudden you're going to have a whole year teaching online using all emails. And, and, and I think that's something that people discuss all the time. It's how do we create these experiences for kids that it's going to help them in this world that doesn't exist yet. I think for me personally, you know, I look at that in different ways. So like for little kids, I want to give them the tools, the tools of how to access reading, you know, simply how to read, right? What do the letters say? You know, how to write. I think that is such a huge skill of how to express yourself. And I think sometimes one of my big critiques here in Europe is that they're so focused on regurgitating information. You know, so I think one of the things American teachers do very well is not just summarizing, for example, but taking content and applying it in new ways to express yourself, opinions, you know, different media, multimedia learning, things like that. Like how do you how do you express yourself differently in a, in a blog 
versus on a website versus on an email versus on a professional academic document? Who's your audience? Like being able to think about who you're writing for. Those tools, I think, are going to serve kids well in the future. In terms of the content, I do think American schools over the past couple decades have really shifted away from content, especially at middle school, high school, and they've moved into strategies, right? And so what I mean by that is if you were to walk into a middle school classroom in a reading, there's a, first of all, there's a reading class, right? Which I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but I, I've looked now at the Austrian model, which is very different. And so what I mean by that is it's content. And so the kids here have a geography class. They have a history class. They have global studies. They have economics, which is something we don't have in the United States. We don't have geography. And they learn content. And so they learn where the pigs are in the world. They learn trade routes. They learn a lot of things, just content. Whereas the American schools are focused on strategies. Like, let's read this passage and discuss the main idea. How do we find the main idea? How do we read this passage and ask a question about it? And so they're doing strategy instruction, not content. And so one of the problems with that, and there has been some new research that's come out about this, is if you have a kid who loves baseball, for example, and you have them read a passage about baseball, they're not going to have a problem telling you the main idea of that passage. Why? Because they know the content. It's simple, right? But if you give them a, a passage about World War II and they have no idea what World War II is, they're going to struggle. Well, is that a main idea problem or is that a content problem? And I think the American system hasn't quite figured out it's going to set balance, right? It's like the phonics versus the whole language. They've kind of thrown out the content in favor of the strategy, which is exactly the opposite of phonics. And I think we need to bring that back in. Like, how do we graduate kids in high school who don't know what a checking account is, who don't know what the stock market is, who've never had experience, you know, doing anything with that? Like, we, I think in that sense, are failing these kids and that we haven't provided them with enough, enough content about the rest of the world. I, and I'm not an exception. I mean, I went to Northwestern. I, I'm, I would say I'm smart and I come to Europe and I, I couldn't, honestly, this is embarrassing, but 20 years ago, if you would ask me where Austria is on a map, I couldn't find it. And I know I have friends in America who are like, you live in Austria. Do you speak Austrian? No, because we speak German here, right? This is a German speaking, it's small country now, but it used to be a massive empire before World War I. But again, people don't know about that. And I'm not any better. I mean, I have to say that I didn't learn enough world history to know about the Austrian Hungarian empire and how after World War I, it collapsed because we don't learn enough context in the States about that. And I think that that makes us, to some extent, poor global citizens. That is my critique of America. I love us. But I think it makes us, compared to, to say, Europeans, we don't know what's going on in the rest of the world. Um, and I don't think Americans care that much because they don't know. And I think it also hurts our, our low-income kids you know, with the economics, that they don't know how to manage money. And so that's something that I would like to see. You know, when we talked about how do we prepare the next generation, I, I want to go back to some more history and more geography and more economics in the States, because I think we miss that compared to where I see the Europeans, where their level of knowledge is in general compared to us. I know that was quick of <laughs> a big answer. Oh, but there's, I mean, there's definitely a balance there when we look at content and strategies and what the yes. things that we need to know to be global citizens and the strategies that we need to have to be critical thinkers. It's both. 
Right. Exactly. It's just like phonics and whole language. It's like you need the strategies. You need to know how to approach text. Like what kind of text is this? Is it a narrative text? Is it an expository? Know the structure, how to approach it, but then also know the content of what's in it. You know, so something I would love to see in America is, is more content, but then have the content teachers use strategies while teaching content. And so I think what I've seen in the States is this like this separation of like there's reading class and you learn strategies and then there's history and it's not, it's something different, you know, and really the best place to learn all these things is just right here, like right within the content and kind of blend these things. You know, and I have to say, you know, I just knocked America there, but, but when I come here to Europe, they don't do strategies. And so it's almost like they've thrown out <laughs> the things we're doing. And so I think, again, it's like this fusion of these two worlds would be my ideal vision for the future of education. Yeah. And that's a lot of what we're trying to do with a lot of the project-based learning strategies is how do we take this content and teach people the history and the background and the content of it, and then the strategies of, well, why did it happen? And what could we do differently? Or what does it look like? You saw this happen between these two entities. What does it look like if these are the two entities? Would the same thing still happen and how we can, you know, use the content to address strategies and thoughts? I love it. I love it. Yes, 100%. That is awesome. Thank you for your time, Jennifer. Of course. This has been fantastic. You gave us some links throughout the conversation of, of ways to reach you, but how can people get in touch with you to learn more? Number one, you could find me on LinkedIn. Jennifer Pressure and send me a message. You could email me. Honestly, my, my name is jenpressure at gmail.com. I'd be happy to talk to anyone about any of these things. Uh, if anyone wants to do things that, what did we talk about today with Lena? Um, if they want to talk about, you know, my, how I helped them set that up about my dissertation, about international baccalaureate. I don't think we talked too much about international association teachers of English as a foreign language, special education. If anyone wants to talk about that, reach out to me. I'm happy to talk about any of this. <laughs> so just message me. Excellent. Thank you so much. Sure. All right. Have a great afternoon. And have a great night. Thank you for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. To learn more about us, visit rebeleducator.com, where you can learn about our professional development opportunities for educators and students and see our project library. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out our progressive, inclusive elementary school, Up Academy, at upacademysf.com. We'd like to say a special thank you to Atmosphere for use of their audio track, Miho. Thanks again for joining us, and we wish you well no matter where your educational journey may lead.